You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Chris D'Amelio is a United States Coast Guard surfman. He's the author of Life and Death at Cape Disappointment. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. This is an interesting story that you tell. And one of the things I really liked is that though a lot of it concentrates on the surf and your work as a surf man at this terrifying place called Cape Disappointment, well-named, uh, you also tell us a lot about yourself and your personal life. Uh, so let's start there. One of the reasons you became a, a Coast Guard surf man was because you were brought up near the ocean. Talk about growing up near the ocean and how that helped you mature, how that helped change your outlook to make you want to work on the ocean. So I... Growing up in Aptos or Santa Cruz is lucky, you know, as a kid, uh, the ocean is your playground. And I thoroughly enjoyed the ocean. I had a lot of friends that surfed, um, had a good understanding, started surfing when I was young. Um, I, my mom said, if you want to start surfing, you got to join the junior lifeguard program. Back then it was just Capitola. So uh, I think I was seven or eight years old. When I started started doing that stuff, um, it was important to me. Uh, when I grew up, I went to Cabrillo and played water polo for a little bit, but school wasn't really for me. I, I wanted to get a job or have a job near the ocean. That's how much I loved it. So I just gravitated towards the Coast Guard. You know, the Coast Guard is, at least to my mind, after reading this book, an underappreciated and a little understood branch of the U.S. services. Talk about where it stands and what is the same as Army, Navy, Air Force, and what is different, mostly different. Well, when I joined, we were part of the Department of Treasury. We're not the Department of Defense. Now it's the Department of Homeland Security. We're not Department of Defense. Um, the Coast Guard has about 36,000 people total in it, which is tiny. Um, before 9-11, we were mostly geared up for search and rescue. Some law enforcement. We obviously did, did law enforcement. But after 9-11, that changed. Um, but yeah, I think the biggest difference is how small we are and people don't really know what we do. Um, the best people that have an understanding of what we do are commercial fishermen, you know, because unfortunately we have to enforce law, rules and laws, um, fishery laws. But um, yeah, it was mostly search and rescue till after 9-11. Now, um, <clears throat> I thought it really interesting the way that you portrayed yourself as a character in, in this book, in that I, I really like that you didn't flatter yourself. You didn't tell us about your secret superpowers or <laughs> you gave us really honest assessment. So talk about just making the decision as a, as a teenager to uh, give your life to the Coast Guard, at least for as long as you could see working. 
So when I joined, I didn't plan on staying in. I, uh, I went to the Coast Guard Cutter Sherman out of Alameda, and I was there for two years, and we made a lot of trips up to Alaska. So I spent a lot of time up in Alaska. Then I was stationed in Monterey for a year, the Coast Guard Cutter Long Island, and then uh, I still wasn't going to stay in. I was going to use the GI Bill and go to school and stick around there. Um, and then I had a year left, and the assignment officer called me and asked me what I wanted to do for the last year. And I said, I wanted to do mostly search and rescue. Um, and he said, well, I got a perfect place for you. It's Cape Disappointment. I thought he was joking. I had no idea that that was a real place. So <laughs> I ended up going up there and the rest is history. I absolutely loved it. Now, Cape Disappointment is at a rocky, unhappy shore with lots of rocks around it with lots of bars there's a, a river that uh enters the ocean in an unfortunate manner uh describe this place in washington if i'm correct yeah so it's raw and unforgiving for sure the columbia river separates oregon and washington and the mouth of the river from the north jetty to the south jetty is two and a half miles wide so the columbia river enters into the pacific ocean that is a wide wide river mouth so you have incoming and outgoing water, either meeting the river or meeting the ocean. Um, it makes for rough conditions. And the Pacific Northwest is notoriously rough anyway. Um, you say Santa Cruz is six foot up there, it's 20 foot at the same time. So it's, it's an unforgiving place. It's exposed to wind, swell, everything. Um, yeah, if anybody ever gets a chance to go up there, and check it out. It's, it's an awesome site. Now, as a young man, you were, you married young and you found yourself in a marriage where you were gone for 90 days at a time. Talk about balance, trying to balance or, or not, and maybe you succeeding or not, balancing life and working with 90 day uh, uh, assignments. That was That was brutal. That was the hardest part of, of our marriage for sure. We weren't prepared for it. You know, we, I didn't really know. Hey, I was going to go on a ship, go up to Alaska. You know, I didn't realize that 90 days, it was really 90 days. So, um, we had, we had a tough time, you know, when I got back, it was like, you know, she'd come pick me up and it was almost like starting over again. You know, we had to kind of work our way into, Hey, we're married. You know, it was, it was, it was a strange, it was a strange time. It was rough on both of us. Um, we have actually done a couple interviews with her. Um, and she looks back on it and she still gets a little emotional. It was rough. Um, I, we didn't realize how rough it was going to be, but it wasn't fun. Um, I'm glad we got through it. Some people don't get through it. You know, you get married, then you don't see your spouse for three months and they're home for a couple of weeks. Then another three months, they're gone. It's a it was a tough time. Uh, I think one of the things that I find really interesting is your examination of, you know, essentially your own kind of maturity because you were growing up married and working in, in the Coast Guard with these hard assignments. Talk about you are still married now. Is much much longer um, away. Talk about writing about the immature you and trying to understand yourself before you were even really you know grown up. And you may or may not be now. 
I myself didn't gravitate between 18 and 85. So, so people tell me, I don't know if this is true or not. Uh, people, people tell me I was pretty mature at a young age. So my wife's a little bit older than me. She's about four years older than me. And the, and the joke was I was more mature than she was, you know, at, I was 20 years old and she was 24, you know, um, things changed. I've always kind of had a level head. So, um, I don't know. Think, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you, you know, too, one of the things that interests me is that there's a word that's bandied about really often, especially with people in, in the various armed forces under that Department of Homeland Security now, which is the word service. And, and you've been in, you were in service for a long time. Talk about, you know, the balance for you, and you make this very clear in the book, is between service and helping people, but also you are addicted to the adrenaline, too, uh, uh, the thrills of what you are doing, which is uh, hazardous, to say the best. Yeah, we get we get beat up. It's super dangerous. You're taking 40,000-pound boats and hitting 25-foot waves and even bigger um, and we do that for training, not just cases. We do it for training. It's a blast. Physically, you get beat up a lot. Um, I'd probably say every single surfman I know has had multiple surgeries, either back, knee. Um, we get we get beat up. Um, but it's fun. We do a lot of training. So when we do get a real case, it's it's exciting. And we do the service part is we want to help people, you know, like. Most of the most of the cases in the Pacific Northwest are for commercial fishermen. That's their livelihood. They supply fish to all over the United States, all over the world, um, and they have to go out. It doesn't matter what the conditions are. So we're there. We're there to help. Um, those guys are smart, uh, but people get in trouble. The ocean's an unforgiving place. I say it all the time. It doesn't matter if it's flat calm. It's it doesn't it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter who you are. Um, but I like the, the fact of going and saving people and helping people. Um, there's nothing. There's no better feeling. Now, you mentioned uh, the idea of a surfman, and you are, in fact, a surfman. Talk about the different levels of service that you encounter. You are a coxswain and then a surfman, and that's a high honor in the Coast Guard, and it's not common. No. So just getting a coxswain qual, it's like a professional boat driver um, in the Coast Guard. There, so there's only, a, there's not many surf stations. Um, there's, there used to be 20. I'm a little out of touch now. I think there's about 14. Uh, most of them are on the West Coast. There's a few on the East Coast, uh, Oregon Inlet, Hatteras, Barnegat Light, Gloucester, I believe, and the rest are on the West Coast. Um, so the opportunity for people isn't very high. Um, but yeah, you get, you get your coxswain qualification. That's basically under eight feet. You can go do search and rescue cases as long as there's no breaking surf. And then you get to the surfman qual, um, where you can go out in any type of conditions and it's less than 10% actually get qualified. It takes a long time to get qualified. A lot of it's weather dependent. You know, you have to have the conditions to do the training, 
now they actually put in place a heavy weather qualification after the coxswain qualification and before the surfing qualification. Um, I didn't do that back when I got qualified. They didn't have that. Um, so, yeah. One of the things I think that is really fascinating about this book is the way you tell the stories. You go back and forth between talking about, you know, life with your wife and life at home. And that is not easy. I never, even in the best of circumstances, difficult. And then you go out to tell us stories about the, you know, going out on the boat, these adventures, really kind of wild stuff that happens. Talk about going back and forth as a writer between the different pools of your life, you know, high adventure on the high seas and high drama <laughs> in a domestic setting. It, so it was hard. I was, I look back and I feel like I was pretty good at separating the two home and work. It was kind of a switch for me, but there were times, you know, I would get a call at home or the alarm would go off or the search and rescue alarm. And I can hear it from our house. Um, and I would go run cases. And I actually, once we were done, I wouldn't even go home. I would wait a couple hours. So the adrenaline kind of, you know, subsided a little bit. I wasn't bouncing off the walls. Um, but I separated the two pretty well. And it actually helped. People think this is crazy. But my wife hates the ocean. She can't stand Like, she's terrified of the ocean. She doesn't know a lot about the ocean, um, which worked out good. So I didn't really tell her a lot that was going on. She knew when I was out, she knew when it was bad and rough. She knew, you know, sometimes people would call and say, Hey, Chris had a bad day. Um, but we didn't talk about, I didn't talk about work with her a lot. You know, um, it, one of the things that, that is really interesting is that the, between you and, and your wife, you know, you had kids and you were gone a lot. Talk, talk about you know the the domestic how much did did your life you know um as a as a husband and as a father how much did that influence what you did at work the choices you made at work when you had a chance to make a choice hmm that's a good question um I guess, I mean, I guess there's a part of me that want to, I think every dad is like this. They want their kids and their wife to be proud of them and what they do. Um, I didn't base my choices off them. Maybe some, as far as promotion and moving, I did, which I regret a little bit. Um, moving for kids is tough. It's not easy to do, especially at certain ages. Um, but I guess, I, I, yeah, deep down, I wanted my kids to be proud of the job that I did. Now, in the early days when you were at Alameda and Monterey, <clears throat> you were, um, you know, stationed on these boats and go, would go on long missions. Um, and, and one of the things you mentioned was that you didn't want to work law enforcement. Talk yeah. about how much law enforcement... Um, the Coast Guards actually uh, do because this is something that, you know, it hadn't really occurred to me, but there's quite a bit. And it's, you know, it's a different kind of law enforcement out there when you're the Coast Guard just approaching some vessel. 
Yeah, so when we would go down south to South America as drug interdiction cases, um, I wasn't on board when we had any big busts or anything. Um, but then we would go up to Alaska and it was mostly uh, fisheries. So law enforcement, fisheries law. Um, you get a lot of people, you know, in the Bering Sea that cross the Russian line and vice versa. So we would patrol the line. Um, anytime there was a search and rescue case or someone hadn't been boarded by the Coast Guard within a year, we go board them, check all their safety equipment. If their safety equipment's good, usually we'll just let them go. If not, then we dig deeper. Um, but law enforcement, like I said earlier, before 9-11, it was still a big part of the Coast Guard. It wasn't the main part, but now it's probably the main part. We started doing security zones, safety zones, uh, guarding critical infrastructure, um, really geared towards security, uh, homeland security. Now, the book is called Life and Death at Cape Disappointment. And you experienced the first on practically your, your, or the last death on one of your very first assignments there. Describe that because it's, and, and tell us the story of that because it, one of the things that. Which one to, are you talking about? This would be the, when uh, you were, you were with two other men on a boat, you were the captain of the boat. And the, there's a girl who had slipped off the rocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that was actually one of my last cases there. It was the, yeah, it was the first chapter of the book. She fell off. There's a couple of lighthouses up there. There's Cape Disappointment Lighthouse and there's a North Head Lighthouse. Um, and you could go along the cliff and there's railing and stuff. But that was one of my last cases there. Um, at the time... It was a nice day. It wasn't rough. Um, you know, I'd been at Cape D for almost, you know, seven and a half years. So I don't want to say I felt invincible, but we did a lot of cool things. And, you know, it kind of, you feel pretty good about yourself. Uh, but this girl and her brother fell off a cliff um, and we could not, we could not get to her. Um, we had a couple new crewmen I had on the boat um, that weren't super comfortable driving. Um, and it was kind of like, I felt like for me, it was like a death by a thousand paper cuts. It was like slow motion watching somebody, uh, watching someone pass. It was, it was awful. I look back to this day. I don't think the outcome would have been any different if I would have done anything different, but I wish I would have done something different. I don't know what that would have been. Um, but that was, a, that was a tough deal. It was like slow motion. There was absolutely nothing we could do. Just the way the, the, the rocks and the boulders were and the eddy and the way she was getting washed around. Um, the, the boy ended up living. He only fell halfway down the cliff uh, and he made it. But that, that, was, that was a toughie for me. Uh, I'm wondering if, if as you wrote about these episodes, you know, you remembered them and probably told the stories many times. Did writing it down make you feel different seeing and reading your own words and reliving the experiences in the words that you had chosen at this time based on your memories of another? 100%. Absolutely. It was, um, it was therapeutic. So in the Coast Guard, we do cases. We don't talk about it. 
it's on to the next, then on to the next, then on to the next. We never really find out what happened to people. Um, we'll talk amongst ourselves a little bit, but then once the next case comes up, then that one's, over. you know what I mean? It's just keep going on to the next. We don't really, we don't really discuss what happens. Um, you know, the Coast Guard provides a critical incident stress management. They have facilitators that come by if there's a, uh, a traumatic event. But we don't discuss it a lot. Uh, I didn't discuss it a lot with my wife, as I said. So writing it was fairly, it was fairly therapeutic for sure. Um, you know, one of the other incidents that's uh, striking is when you went to got a call from a fishery boat, and you went there and found just uh, something like almost to me unimaginably horrible. So. I, and if it's okay, I'd like you to talk about that. Which one was it? This, so there's a lot of, sorry. Uh, the beheading. Uh, so I wasn't actually quite, that was one, that was one of my first cases. Uh, yeah, I was, it was the first year I was there. How um, old were you? 24, 24. So we got a call, we went out, the guy that was the coxswain kind of knew what was going on. Uh, it was kind of quiet. We went out there and they have what's called a block where they bring up crab pots. I don't know if you've ever watched uh, like Deadliest Catch. They have those things where they bring up the crab pots and the line goes through. Well, this guy got his head stuck in that thing and it decapitated him and he was laying on the deck and we got alongside and you know those guys the captain they they did a good job but they were kind of i'm talking about the fishing boat they're kind of a mess i mean this is their friend their co-worker you know um i didn't have a whole lot of emotion about it until we got to the dock where the news cameras were there there was a police officer there and that was the worst part. The, uh, to this day, I can't understand why this guy did that, but the police officer went over and picked up the guy's head and put it next to the body in front of the front of family, friends, uh, news. It was, it was unsettling for sure. What kind of cases were, typical for you what was a typical day like for you at cape disappointment so summertime was was super busy because it was um uh, salmon fisheries so it's recreational boaters so a lot of people most of the time they were they were not dramatic cases they were people broken down we would tow them in uh, some people would get lost in the fog that was pretty common we'd go find them um, I'd say one in 20 cases are high adrenaline cases. Most of them are pretty easy. They're just broken down. Um, but in the winter time from December to March is when it gets nasty, you know, it's winter time. And those are the commercial, the, uh, the big cases, cause it's nasty out. Now we might only get 30 or 40 cases in a three month period one year. And one year might only get 15 cases. It all depends some years are worse than others. Uh, it's kind of like being at a, a fire station. You're kind of sitting around and waiting and training and waiting and training. Um, but summertime was probably the most fun because we were so busy. We would run 30 or 40 cases in a weekend. Um, 
it was, it was, it was a good time. Like I said, most of those were just towing people in or going, going and finding people that were lost in the fog. In one case, you describe a long tow and this is by that, that's a long time. You guys got there, I think in the evening and didn't get back to the, uh, short till the next morning and you yourself were tired. Uh, tell us what happened in that one case. So we, we, um, you get a lot of tuna guys that are out there and they're way offshore and they break down. And a lot of times they take care of themselves, but the coast guard had what was called 52 foot motor lifeboats. They don't have them anymore. <laughs> they decommissioned them and they can go way offshore. 150 miles was their range. Um, so at the time we had those and anything over 50 miles is a little bit sketchy because you don't have radio comms. Um, it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. But um, there was just a, a tuna guy broken down and uh, we went to go get him. And some of those cases, that particular case lasted over 20 hours. The funny thing about that one was we were towing them in at a perfect speed so they could fish. So they continued to fish while we were towing them in. Um, I probably shouldn't say that. I guess I can say it now because I'm retired. But um, yeah, the, some of those cases, the tuna cases were long, long cases, but they're fun. It's it's being out on the ocean. It's great. Well, too, when you got in, the, you had some issues with the, the ship pulling up right beside you and couldn't slow down. Talk about, you know, that mouth of the river is a you, as you describe it, it's a fairly dangerous place to be because the waters are colliding and whichever one is stronger at the moment is going to win out. But who's going to be the loser in that war is anybody who's on that line. Yeah. So what's called, you know, as the tide's going out, it's called an ebb current. So the water's going out. It could flow up to 10 knots, almost 13 miles an hour and vice versa. A flood is the incoming tide. And a lot of the a lot of the places on the Columbia River have small little inlets or um, channels to get to uh, the docks, and those are even those are affected even more because they're smaller. So a lot a lot of times you feel like you're sitting still, but you're moving about ten miles an hour or ten knots. Uh, so you have to be you got to be paying attention all the time, and and the one you're talking about. You know, sometime when you're, sometimes when your adrenaline's high and you're tired, you don't really make the best decisions or you're not, not totally aware when you think you're aware. Um, but, but yeah, you always, you always have to pay attention. It's not like sitting on a lake, you know, there's always, there's always set and drift. There's always movement. One thing you say was in the book, you say, I could talk about events like these or bring them home with me so I internalize them. As a result, when I was at home, I was never really at home, especially in my early years working at Cape Disappointment. Talk about, you know, your home life. You come home, you've got kids. How much of that brain space of your brain space was was filled with all the things that had happened and you know that really had there's got to be some high adrenaline you know that 
split between the high adrenaline and the boredom of just sitting there waiting for something to happen. And then at home where it's, there's that constant kind of low-key, um, you know, kids want attention, wife wants attention, things around the house you have to, to do. Talk about, you know, the split mindset. So I, I was lucky in the fact that work was like a great hobby. I absolutely loved it. That's all I wanted to do was be out on the water helping people. So when I would go home, a lot of times I wouldn't really look back and think about the things that I have done, but I was thinking about the next one, you know, what's going to happen next. Um, I always felt like home life was much harder than work when you got kids running around and, you know, it's a little bit more stressful for me, which people think that's weird. They think work is more stressful, but I had the time in my life. It was, it was fun. I was always thinking about the next one. Um, now, of course I love my kids and my wife and I want to be home hanging out. Um, but we actually lived right next to the station on the water in a house right next to the water. So every time something would happen, I would see what was going on. And my wife used to get so mad at me because I would actually hop in my truck and run down to a boat and steal cases from people, which wasn't fair. But I just had so much fun doing it that, uh, yeah, I couldn't help myself. Uh, so you were a true adrenaline junkie, eh? Yeah. You know... Why don't you talk about, uh, uh, you know, when you were uh, a new surfing, uh, starting out, uh, a search and rescue alarm went off and, and you had to drive out towards Astoria where a woman had fallen in the water. Tell us about, you know, rescuing people who are in the water, who are drowning, and that's a fairly terrifying experience. And you yourself, as a surf, be, as a surfer, put yourself out in the water early on. Yeah. So, you know, people in the water, the colder the water is, the more dangerous it is, you know, hypothermia. Um, so anytime there's someone in the water, that was a, that was a unique case. Um, we drove up to Astoria. It was a husband and a wife and she had fallen overboard and he couldn't get her up because she was, pretty she was a heavy set lady um so we actually had to tow her back to the docks which sounds really strange we kind of put some lines around next to the boat and towed her back in but anytime somebody's in the water it's a matter of seconds because the water is so cold um it's just like going out there just go hop in at sea cliff without a wetsuit and see how long you last you're not going to last very long you won't and it's even colder up there um, so anytime we had a person in the water, it was, uh, as fast as we could possibly go. Cause every second counts. And, and tell us a little bit about the time when early on in your, after your arrival at Cape Disappointment, when you decided to go surfing alone, <laughs> ill-advised, uh, in every way, shape or form and were smashed. Yeah. So there's a really good surf spot. At, at Cape Disappointment. It's called the A-Jetty. Um, and I had watched waves and I had watched that place. I grew up surfing. I'm pretty capable. Uh, and I had watched that place for a couple months and it was really, really good, but there's no access to get in the water. You're basically jumping off giant boulders. 
Uh, there's a shipwreck out there right in the middle of the lineup. Um, and you're kind of at a, a elevated vantage point. So when you're up high and you're looking down, it always looks smaller than it is, you know? So I decided one day I was going to paddle out by myself and that was totally ill advised. I almost drowned. I got destroyed. Um, but after that, I ended up surfing by myself a lot. And there, there was a park ranger there um, who was also from California down in San Diego. He became my surf partner. Um, but people would look at us up in Washington like we were nuts for surfing out there. Now, you at work, you you were with, you know, a steady group of people. Talk about the relationships between the surf men, the, the coxswains, and, you know, the... The, the group dynamic that of the, the Coast Guard. So uh, Ilwaco um, at Cape Disappointment, Sayusla River, Umpqua, those are extremely small towns, uh, small coastal communities. Um, the Coast Guard with the people working and their spouses, their dependents are very, very tight. We spend a lot of time together. We could finish each other's sentences. We have to know everybody's jobs, you know? So it, people are really, really tight. When we're not working, we're together at barbecues or at parties. Um, it, it was a really good time. And at, at, at Cape D at that time, we had a really good group of people. I still talk to four or five of those people on a weekly basis. Um, we all say the same thing. We had the time of our lives there. Uh, we were such a tight knit group. We were pretty good at what we did. Uh, it was busy. Um, we wish we could go back. Uh, but of course, if you go back, it's just not the same, but, um, we all wish we can go back. You know, it's interesting too, as you were talking, I was thinking that this is a really interesting, you know, group of people who are, you know, almost just kids still, you know, you, you've got your first, your young children together. Talk about, you know, the impact of the seriousness of your job. You know, you're pulling people out of the water there. So, you know, you're, you're also pulling a lot of dead bodies out of the water. Um, so talk about the impact of that on the people you worked with and also your families. So I think everybody handles it differently. You know, um, I wouldn't say some people are immune to it, but people kind of hide it away. Uh, for me personally, um, I kind of, this is, this is probably going to sound terrible, but you kind of look at a body like an object, not a live person, just an object. So it wasn't, it wasn't a huge, huge deal for me um, until a kid was involved. Now, I know people and know of cases like terrible cases. Um, there was a helicopter crash. There was body parts everywhere. I think it, it, that case is in the book. There was two people involved in that case that got out of the Coast Guard. They were like, there is no way we would ever want to do this again, pick up body parts. And I can understand that so everybody was 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 different in how they handled it um yeah and like i said they had what was called critical incident stress management so if there's something traumatic you can openly talk to somebody about it uh, a lot of people didn't uh, but it was there that resource was there 
but yeah, like I said, everybody kind of handles it differently. As you ascended the ranks and became essentially the, the top rank, the, the, the surf man, talk about, you know, looking back as a youth, from where you first started, you know, here in, in Santa Cruz and in Alameda and Monterey, and thinking about how you got to where you were and how you became who you were. And, and I'm mostly interested in how you became who you were. Was the adrenaline still uh, the, the big draw? Yeah, so I was, I was pretty driven and focused. Uh, when I knew what I wanted, I would go get it kind of thing. Um, I look back and part of my success was due to me being reckless. I was, I was a little bit reckless. Um, and I also got lucky. I mean, there are times that you, you, you know, there's, there's some luck involved. Um, but I was focused on what I wanted to do. Um, but yeah, like I said, I look back now and some of the stuff I probably shouldn't have done. Um, I was pretty reckless, but it worked out. It, it worked out. Yeah. And I yeah. think <laughs> yeah. uh, l- lucky you, um, if it didn't work out, you could have drowned in the surfing, you know, early on. So, yeah. So, you know, people talk about the boats that roll over in the surf, right? They're, they're self-riding motor lifeboats. If you roll one of those, you made a massive mistake. People really get hurt when those things roll over. Um, I could say this is something I'm probably the most proud of in my Coast Guard career. I never once hurt anybody while driving. I never rolled, never got knocked down. No one ever got hurt. And it's amazing all the chances I took and how reckless I was. Um, like I said, you had to get a little bit lucky sometimes. Um, but I, we've seen one time we were out training. Um, you always have to take two boats out in the surf and it was small, you know, maybe 12 foot, 14 foot at the most. And, uh, when it's small like that, you kind of search around for surf to hit some waves, you know, to see how it feels. And somebody got careless. I wasn't on the boat. We were next to them and they rolled and they were upside down for, I don't know, 14, 15 seconds. Um, was that? Oh, nothing. <laughs> no problem. But, yeah, they were upside down for like 14, 15 seconds. And that was a totally helpless feeling. And when you're underwater uh, in an upside down boat, it's like being in a washing machine or going and sprinting 100 yards, holding your breath. You know, it's it's uh, it is dangerous. Did you ever find yourself at the end of some kind of an adventure like this think you know thinking well maybe i need to make a different choice i'm getting older now yeah i i did so there was a few things involved in me so i went from cape disappointment to station sayusla river which is in florence oregon to umqua river um I knew I wanted to be promoted, which would take me out of the surf community. Now I could have come back, but for a short period of time, it would have taken me out. But there was actually, this is a good question. 
because there was one day I was going to do surf training. And when you, when you go out and do surf training, you should be a little nervous. You should have some nerves. You should be a little, a little scared. You need to be aware because you have people's lives in your hands. You know, it's dangerous. And I was sitting there and I was putting on all my gear and my dry suit. And I was almost kind of jaded, like, this isn't really fun anymore. I'm not getting a whole lot of excitement out of that. And that's when I knew I needed a change because that's not fair to anybody else if that's my attitude, you know. Um, so then I came out to, to New Orleans and I've been here ever since. But um, I wish now I would have gone back because I, I miss it a lot. But I think once you stop, being scared or interested or nervous, it's time to move on because it's dangerous. Um, absolutely. We'll talk about, you know, you, you have a, a chapter in your book called uh, Farewell. So talk about uh, saying goodbye to, to, you know, a world that you'd, you know, uh, been such a, a, you know, integral part of that was, you know, I'd say, you know, as large a part of your life as your family was. And, and talk about the, you know, the, I guess the war between the family and the work. Yeah. So the surf community in general is very tight. We, we all are friends. We're all close. Um, like you said, it was a huge part of my life for a long time. It was a huge part of my kids and my wife. Uh, we were all close with these people. Um the job was great. It was it was one of the hardest things I ever had to do was leave. Um, probably because we were so comfortable. You know, it's hard leaving something that you're so comfortable with. Um, yeah, every time I talk about this, I wish I would have gone back because because I miss it so much. But um, yeah. Like you say, that, that was probably the toughest time was leaving there and knowing I might might come back. I might not. And even if I do come back, things won't be the same because the people won't be the same. But um, that, that was tough. Moving was tough. You, you know, one of the things that I think is most interesting and appealing to me are those years when you lived like right at the ocean, right next to where you work. That's a really interesting dynamic just in terms of work life. Um, you're always essentially always at work. Yeah. yeah. Most people would not like that. Um, most people would hate it. I loved it. We were, we were right on the, we were right on the ocean. You could throw a rock to it's called Baker Bay channel uh, that goes into the Columbia River. Um, but we were, I don't know, 25 yards away from the water. And I could see the Coast Guard boats maybe 300 yards away, you know, a quarter mile away. Um, I loved it because I loved my job. But I, I guess most people would look at it like, God, we got to get away from work for a while. And every time I left, we would come home to Aptos, you know, or go to Tahoe. If we have family there. Um, I'd want to go back to work, which probably isn't fair to my family at the time, but I would want to go back to work. You know, one of the things too, that I, that I found interesting are the different site sorts and sizes of boats that the Coast Guard uses. It's very regulated. So tell us what they had when you started it and 
what changes were have been were made through the years you were there and since and why they made them so there's been a ton of changes we had um so when i got there we had five different boat types we have what's called an rhi a rigid hull inflatable boat soft sides um then we had a 30 foot um it was a it was also a rewriting boat um a surf boat we had a 44 surf boat we had a 47 foot surf boat we had a 52 foot surf boat and then the coast guard started to standardize everything so we wanted to get everything everybody needs to be on the same page so the older boats the 30 footer and the 44 we got rid of um we sold i think they sold them to different countries a couple went to museums um and then we got a contract with safe boat um they have these super, super fast boats and that's more where it's geared towards law enforcement. And then we stuck with the 47 foot motor lifeboats, but now those are actually changing too. They've, they've run their lifespan. It's been 25 years and those things get beat up. They get really beat up. Um, so the coast guard right now, I mean, I'm a little bit out of touch cause I'm re- I've been retired for a while. But um, they're changing out in the next couple of years. They're getting rid of the boats I used to operate and they're getting new platforms. As a boat driver, talk about, you know, the rules of the the ocean and the boat road, as it were, in dealing with other boaters, other Coast Guard people. I mean, when you're out there in the summer at Cape Disappointment, there are a lot of people on the water, in the water, Talk about navigating between everybody else who's diving, boating, or doing something really dumb. So, so if you want to put yourself to sleep, read navigation rules uh, and rules of the road. It's a book written by lawyers. So there are more maritime laws and rules than there are on the road. Um, the Coast Guard, we kind of use the rule of gross tonnage. If it's bigger than you, stay out of the way. Um, we, we stayed out of everybody's way. There are certain situations where we'll have the right of way when you're towing somebody, but we use the rule of gross tonnage. There are so many rules uh, on the water that we just stay out of the way. How much time did you have to work at night? It strikes me that I'm old now, and so even driving at night is an unhappy experience for me. It must be about 10 times more terrifying on the water because it's not like there's any streetlights out there. No. So when I was when I was operating those, we didn't have chart plotters either. We just had an old green screen radar that had a three second delay. So yeah. So when there was surf, it would pick up surf. So the whole thing would be green. Um, so you really had to be able to navigate, uh, using your, your GPS, um, in the river, you have lights, dayboards, lights that you can line up, uh, for navigation purposes. But once you get offshore, it's, 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 you're, it's like you're blind. Um, it's tough. If you if you're out there and you didn't have the radar and your GPS went out, good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Now, 
when you retired from the Coast Guard, tell us where you went and why you decided to go there and what you thought you would get from that that you were no longer getting from the Coast Guard and what you were getting at the Coast Guard that you would prefer to leave behind. So I, I moved to Louisiana, like I said, for promotional purposes only. And I wanted to go back, but the family kind of took a vote and I'm kicking myself for taking the vote because they wanted to stay here uh, and we're still here. Um, I did it for promotional purposes. And then during my stint at Station New Orleans, I had a medical issue come up. Um, so I was actually medically discharged from the Coast Guard. I didn't I didn't walk away. I, I kind of made them kick me out because I'm still pretty healthy. But I had this medical issue that, you know, it was a liability, basically. So I couldn't operate boats anymore. You can't take nitroglycerin pills and operate boats. It doesn't it doesn't work. Um, so, yeah, I probably I probably would have stayed in and I actually would have been getting out this year, would have made 30 years. Um, but, yeah, I would have stayed in for sure. Now, this book has been an option for a movie. So, I, yeah, the, the book option thing is, is kind of strange. So what they do is they option it. They write some type of script. And that could be either a movie, it could be a series, it could be a documentary. So once they write a script, they shop it out and see how much interest there'll be. Um, I don't know exactly what they're doing with it right now. Um, I know they're in the script writing phase and the character development phase. Um, but when it comes to motion picture industry, I, don't, I have no idea. And I, all I know is it takes a long time. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. really interesting. You know, I've talked to many authors and it had never occurred to me and nobody's ever told me that they could take a book and documentary, TV series, fiction, you know, based on a true story, uh, loosely, ever loosely, more loosely. It's tethered. We can see that real story from with binoculars. Right, right. <laughs> now, now, or what form would you prefer it to be? Would you like prefer it to be a straight up documentary, or are you looking for something more like a, uh, you know, uh, perfect storm kind of thing where there are actors and etc.? So that's another good question, and I, I, to be honest with you, I haven't really thought about that. The one thing, the one thing I don't want to do is sell the rights and then lose any say in anything that happens because I don't, I'm not, I'm not loyal to the Coast Guard at all, but I'm loyal to the people that used to do the job and that are doing the job. And it would be a disservice to them uh, if the story wasn't told correctly. Um, that would be great if it was a series. Um, it's not, regardless of what people say, it's not a super lucrative deal anyway. You know, the writers don't get a whole lot. Um, I think a series would be cool. The problem with this series is like we talked about earlier, people don't really know what the Coast Guard does. So it's hard getting people interested in something they don't know anything about, you know? Um, 
So well, yeah. I will say that this book certainly gets you interested in the Coast Guard. Now, you had uh, some help with this. Uh, Reed Maruyama, uh, yes. talk about uh, you know collaborating on a story that's about you. So Reed saved me. I mean, I could not have done this without him. Um, it it was kind of funny the way it worked out. I started writing a little bit after the medical issue. I want to write it for my kids. And I was sitting here and I'm like, I'm not the I'm not the greatest writer. This is going to take me forever. I need someone with some type of writing background to look at it. And my son was like, hey, why don't you have Reed look at it? it was my wife's cousin. I was like, holy cow, ding, ding. So I had him look at a couple chapters or some of the stuff I wrote, wrote out. And he said, hey, why don't you let me take a stab at this and let's work together. I said, okay. So he did all of his homework. He went up to Cape D. He did a ton of interviews. Super, super, super smart guy. Uh, he was speaking the, he's like a sponge. He was speaking the lingo and knew exactly what we were talking about within weeks. And some people it takes years. Um, he was like a sponge. There is no, I give him all the credit in the world. There is no way I could have done it uh, as fast as we did it without him. We had we had a good we had a good time doing it, and it's uh, equally fun to read the new book by Chris D'Amelio and Reed Mariyama is Life and Death at Cape Disappointment. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.